0: We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 10. We're starting our Lenten series. I'd like to read the scripture. We'll go into prayer. We've got some people that I want to remember before the Lord. Um, but we're going to be primarily focusing on verses 1 through 10 in chapter 52. Isaiah writes, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall, come no, there shall no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore... What have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. talking about the Babylonian captivity. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is God's word. You may be seated as we go into prayer this morning. Father, we are thankful that we can open up what we know to be the Old Testament and we can see Jesus in the verses that we read. Remind us, Lord, though, that there are those who open up those verses and just begin to wonder when you're going to fulfill them. Not realizing that you have already done so. Remind us, Lord, about the gift of your Son as we walk through these passages in Isaiah for these next weeks. Remind our hearts, Lord, about the work that you've done, that there's nothing that we could have done to set us right before you, but you took care of it all. Help us to see these things as we unpack what Isaiah has written in these couple chapters in the middle of his writings. Lord, turn our hearts to you. Help us to make much of Jesus. In the truth that in you there is life and life everlasting. We give you thanks, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Starting a new series for the next six weeks leading up to Easter and Good Friday and whatnot. We're going to be digging into the book of Isaiah. Um, I know for most of us, that probably doesn't seem strange for some people who don't know the scriptures and don't understand why we would do that. We do that because, well, Isaiah has a lot of things to tell us about what Easter is all about, as much as he does to tell us about what Christmas is all about. So I've titled the message, at least for the next couple weeks, The New Exodus. So this is part one, just because I'm anticipating part two. And we might have part three, four, five, and six as well. I don't know, but we're going to start at least with part one. And I want us to really take away today, primarily, we need to understand that God, the creator of the universe, and recognizing our predicament as human beings, takes it upon himself to fix the issue that we created and restore us back to right standing with him. He's shifting from the whole judgment and wrath piece to the freedom that we can have because of what God is going to do, according to Isaiah, but what we know he has already done in Jesus. And Isaiah begins to paint this picture as a prophet, trying to figure out exactly what's going on. He begins to paint this picture of our promised salvation. And it's been going on throughout the book, but it really starts here at the end of chapter 51, and it goes into 52. Isaiah has been a longtime favorite Old Testament book of mine. It's the largest, I believe. It doesn't have the most words, but it's 66 chapters long, and he's the largest of the prophets. And he holds so many different facets of God's story in dynamic tension in his writings right from the beginning until the end. That many commentators, if you open up your books and you start tearing them apart, think that more than one Isaiah existed to write this particular book. At the very least, some commentators think two. Some even think three. I think, because I'm not a real complicated guy when it comes to stuff like this, I'm going to be inclined to think um, Isaiah wrote it. One guy. Just because it's dynamically different doesn't mean that it has to be different authors. God gave him different things to tell us, and he covers a huge bit of ground in his, in his writings. He covers judgment, as you read through the first 39 or so chapters. He looks at all of the nations, and as well as the nation of Israel. He covers redemption in all kinds of different ways. He has prophetic visions within his writings that are very hard for him to understand. I can only imagine that he's on his tiptoes as he's looking down the halls of history, trying to figure out who this guy is who this suffering servant is, who this little child who was born of a virgin is. Yet he writes these words down because that's what he's told to. Very clear pictures are painted in Isaiah, at least for us anyway, because we can look back through the lens of history. He's looking forward. And that's why it's so hard to understand sometimes for us how the people in the times of Jesus didn't see him in the writings of Isaiah. We take a look at these passages and we're like, how could they not understand that's who it was? Well, it's because, you know, they just didn't. Many still don't. That's what we need to concern ourselves with because, you know, when it comes down to it, we have to understand this more than anything else. Belief in this book, belief in the Bible itself, is not ultimately an intellectual question. We can't reason ourselves into heaven. There are a good many people that study this book and know it inside and out here. Ultimately, what it boils down to is a moral question. Will we, in faith, by grace, accept what it is God has done for us in and through Jesus? A lot of people understand those as facts, and they will freely admit, yes, this is true. I still don't want to believe it. Ultimately, it's not an intellectual question. It's a moral one. Don't ever think you can argue somebody into the kingdom. It's up to the Holy Spirit. Alec Mateer writes this as he introduces us to Isaiah in his commentary. And he is probably one of the foremost commentators on the book. He has since passed. He's an old Scottish uh, Old Testament scholar. And he says this, Isaiah is the Paul of the Old Testament in his teaching that faith faith in God's promises is the single most important reality for the Lord's people. He is the Hebrews of the Old Testament in his proposal of faith as the sustaining strength of the Lord's people in life's dark days. He is also the James of the Old Testament in his insistence that faith works, proving itself in obedience. Behind all this lies the history through which he lived, this is Isaiah, and the future events as he envisaged them. So in other words... He does everything that Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, and then James, explains for us. In his faithfulness, he puts it down. Isaiah himself is quoted in the New Testament more than any of the other Old Testament prophets combined. So it's important that we understand that. In his writings, we find Jesus pretty much everywhere. The one that this entire book, not just the book of Isaiah, but the Bible itself. The Bible is not a book about the Bible. The Bible is a book about who? Jesus, every place we look will ultimately point to him, whether through symbolism or prophetic utterances or just direct words. They will always point to him. We find Jesus throughout all of this. However cryptic at times it may seem, that's what we're looking for. There is much to spark our interest in this book. There's much to spark our interest just even in these two chapters. And to challenge us not only to be engaged in our own minds and our own heart, but with folks who have lost hope and actually believing that anything in this world can be true. There's much there to be wrestled through and to be encouraged by. It's quite a story. When we come to it as if we've never read it before, it's actually a beautiful story in my mind that never gets old and it is never boring if we read it and we see it and we live it for all it's worth. I've studied the Bible for the better part of 32 years of my life and every time I go to a passage to tackle it all over again, I see something new. And not because God has changed the words around, but because he has grown me to the place where I can see the things that need to be seen. See, because it's really hard to imagine when we think about this, reading the whole book of Isaiah. How it could be that this one that was born of a virgin, that son given whose shoulders would carry all the governments upon this world, is that same exact one who would bear our griefs. How is that? How do we make that work? The same one who is going to be pierced for our transgressions. How can the the son that is given, that that virgin-born one who is going to rule the entire world, be the one who is crushed for our iniquities? But that's the paradigm that we have in Isaiah. That's the dynamic tension that we are faced with. Because that is God's story. He's going to take upon himself what needs to be taken upon. The greatest one ever told and ever given to humankind, we can find in these 66 books that we call the Bible. And my prayer over these next six weeks of Lent and Easter is that we settle some time for ourselves to be focused on these things, to be prayerful, not only for one another and the person that we have on the card that we have, but that the Lord would open up our hearts, show himself to us in and through his word, and show us our, our Savior as well. See, we're going to discover, I hope, if I do my job well, some answers As to why it is God did what he did the way he did it in order to rescue us from our predicament. That we are hopelessly lost in sin. And without help, we are stuck where we are. And how it is he then wants to use us as servants once he sets us up to be able to reach the world as servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords. For those who don't know him yet. You see, we are not. Nor have we ever been designed to be, no matter how much people want to convince us, to simply get through life as best as we can, safely arriving at death and knocking on heaven's gates. That is not what we are designed to do. We are saved with purpose and for a reason. Mater, again, in his devotional commentary, which I have read, we're going to be quoting from him a lot because, well, I like him um, and because <laughs> I've read him a lot. Um, He talks about these verses in 52. This is what he says. The great objective, the fight, too. He's talking about us as Christians. He says the great objective, the fight, too, of the Christian life is to be what we are. To be what we are. Not seeking or striving after some future blessing, but exploring and experimenting even more fully the complete salvation given to us in Jesus. It's not just, I checked the box, I said the fancy prayer, and now I'm hoping that the world goes to hell in a hand-backed because they're so rebellious and I get to go to heaven in glory. But how can we be what we are, fully the image that God has created us to be? See, at the time of his writing, neither he nor Israel knew Jesus. We all know that. They did know the promise of the one to come. They understood that God was going to be sending someone to redeem them. The time when the world will be fixed and it will be put back to right. So it will be operating the way it was supposed to. Evil will be judged with. Sin will be dealt with. And part of what is happening here is we take a look at this at the end of chapter 51. One of the verses that I read and then on through chapter 52 is the ending of wrath and the beginning of freedom from their sin. This may unsettle some, but let's unpack this and let's take a look at the truth of what the scripture says. See, Because this is what Isaiah is writing about and this is what he's exploring. It's the end of wrath and the beginning of freedom. Why? Because he's going to map out how that's going to look. God was going to deliver the people of Israel and anybody else who believed in what was going to happen, just as he had from Egypt. Their first deliverance as they were brought up out of there in the great exodus and give them a new Passover. Give them a new exodus. The holiness of his people rising from the oppression and the dust and the trouble is seen directly in verses 1 and 2. When Isaiah writes, awake, awake, Oh, put on your strength, O oh Zion! Put on your beautiful garments, O oh Jerusalem, O oh holy city! For there shall come no more. There shall no more come into you the uncircumcised, the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O oh Jerusalem. Lose the bonds from your neck, O oh captive daughter of Zion. You see, one of the right, best benefits we have of a right relationship with God through Jesus is freedom. Amen. Is freedom. Not freedom to do what we want, but freedom from the things that have held us captive our entire life. That's what we have. We can't do this ourselves. And that's what Isaiah is trying to tell us. He's trying to explain to us that we need divine help, and God gives it. He doesn't leave us abandoned on our own. And that's where 51.22 comes in, why I read it. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Now listen to this. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Those who receive what God is preparing to give to them do not deal with that anymore. It's not a good tool for the church to use to scare people into the kingdom. God passionately loved us while we were in sin, so he has to remove his wrath. And we're going to unpack this here. If God gives freedom to us because we are helpless to do it ourselves, we ought to really then see who God has made you to be in Christ with that freedom. He hasn't just freed you for nothing, He has put you in Christ for a reason. How valuable you are to Him as a human being because He created you. Stand where you belong. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what David says in Psalm 40. He pulls us up out of a pit, out of the muckery and the mire, and he sets our feet where? On solid ground. Not on slippery slopes, because it's a game. I want to see if I can trick you into doing something wrong so I can slap you down again. No, he sets our feet on solid ground. He sets us up for success. We are our own worst enemies. Why does he do that? Because ultimately, the people of Israel... And the people of God who receive Jesus, which is the church, the people of God as a whole, have work to do. Our duty is to tell people of God's salvation for all humanity in and through this Jesus. Isaiah doesn't know all this, but he understands what God's telling him. I've got to put this down. And this is working itself out. You see, they aren't quite there yet. They aren't quite there yet. What Isaiah is doing for us here is he's letting us know, as we move through 51 and 52, that God is taking his wrath away. He's taking his judgment away. He's taking it away from them, and he's setting them back up as his daughter. As his daughter. In other words, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself because you are mine. That through all of their struggles in life, from the exile in Egypt, throughout the Assyrian or Babylonian captivity, his people will know his name, and he will speak to them. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Not redeemed for nothing, but redeemed without money. There's a hint there on how they're going to be redeemed. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. You see, he's concerned for his people because his name is dragged through the mud. It's not okay that the world sees him in a wrong light because of the way his people are being treated and the way his people act. It's his name. Our purpose is what? To bring glory to God, enjoy him every day. His purpose for us is to conform us to the likeness of his son. Why? So that we can bring glory to God and enjoy him daily. Live in community with him. But the rub here. We have to be careful because it's so easily overlooked. The rub when we take a look at this is the fact that although God is taking away his wrath and his judgment, we have to be very careful here. He's taking it away from his people and he's taking it away from humanity as a whole because we can't stand up underneath that. It doesn't, nor can it ever just disappear. It has to go somewhere. Because if he's a righteous God and he's a just God he can't just say, okay, you have messed up totally we're going to wash our hands of that, it's okay. No, that's not the picture that's being painted here. It has to go somewhere. In other words, as John Pokinghorn says when you take a look at the universe and we understand God there is no free lunch. Somebody at some point needs to pay. My salvation was free for me but it cost Jesus' life. Somebody somewhere has to pay. Mater says this, transcendent though he is, his sovereignty is not remote. And I love this line, his sovereignty is not remote. He's the creator of the universe, he runs the whole thing, but he says that he is practical in every day for God's people. He is the Lord revealed once and for all as the God who saves his people and overthrows his foes. Your God, the God who freely committed himself to you and your welfare. And fourthly, the God of absolute justice and legality who defends. In other words, he pleads your cause. He pleads the cause of his people. And he takes their case to the bar of justice. He stands in your place. Because you can't stand. I can't stand. So as the story begins to unfold, read it as if you have no idea that Jesus was and is the answer. And you're going to see something beautiful unpack itself here in the weeks ahead. This suffering servant that nobody really knew about and couldn't make sense of, who had done absolutely nothing wrong, takes upon himself the wrath that God removed from his people. Because it has to go somewhere. That's why Paul tells us, and the song tells us, that the wrath of God was satisfied where? On the cross. The wrath of God was satisfied. You know what that is? It's justification. It's pictures of the atonement. Ultimately, very simply, that's grace. That is absolute grace. Grace. And it's not the cheap grace that people grab onto. We fill out a card, we check a box, we say our name, and we go on about life doing whatever we want. This is the tough, costly grace that was bought and given at the expense of another for you and for me. And we ought to live under that understanding that my life eternally cost someone else their life. That's grace. And that's not cheap if we see it that way. You see... All of humanity deserves justice. There is not one of us sitting in this room that does not deserve to stand before the bar of the God of the universe and be judged accordingly. That's just a fact. Instead, Isaiah is beginning to show us here. Instead, we have somebody else who stands before that bar for us. And we receive the grace that is given to us because of what this servant did. Jesus stands there, and he looks at every one of you, and he looks at me, and he says, mine. Mine. Now, i got that one covered, too. I've got her covered. I've got him covered. Oh, she's coming up to the bar, and boy, she was, but no, mine. That's what we're seeing here. See, Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, paints this picture for us really clearly. For a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Why? Because he took it on himself. He took it on himself. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We are weak. We cannot help ourselves. We can never perform our way into God's good graces. We cannot do it. Let us then be very careful not to require of other human beings what was not required of us. God's love for us is that while we were the baddest of the bad, Jesus died for us. And in doing so, we are justified. Undeservedly so, but we are justified because God's wrath Was satisfied in Christ upon the cross. That is the atonement. By his stripes we are healed. Not necessarily my sicknesses, but my eternal soul is healed because his wrath was satisfied in Christ upon the cross. If being enemies of God he reconciled us to himself, why would we ever put any burden on someone else? Seeking for answers other than come as you are. Come as you are, broken, dirty, and sinful. I've walked that road. I was broken, I was dirty, I was sinful. In fact, were it not for Jesus today, I'd still be broken, dirty, and sinful. Yeah, Christ has reconciled you and cleaned you up. The only duty you have is obedience to what he's already purchased for you. Don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. God in heaven does not need any human being to believe that he is the God in heaven and the one who sent his son Jesus to save us in order to make it so. So for someone to say, I will receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and that makes him Lord and Savior is a false statement. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Regardless of what I think, regardless of what I believe, He is. God is. So to convince somebody that their belief makes Him so is false. He has already given to them the grace that was afforded once for all on the cross. Our duty is to help them understand that they have been bought at a price. Their only duty is acceptance of what has already been done. Because He is your Lord. Do you want Him now or do you want Him then? Because the then doesn't paint a real good picture. But the now, on the other hand, does. The Bible is crystal clear. Our belief and non-belief doesn't make God who He is. But God's Holy Spirit works on our hearts and our minds so we can willingly choose and admit now what is eternal truth. We need to understand that. Remember, it's not an intellectual debate. It is ultimately a moral conundrum. That's what it is. We cannot argue somebody into the kingdom. That this Jesus is both Lord and King. Excuse me. That is the good news. That's what the church is to be about. The gospel, that Jesus is Lord and King. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's the gospel. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's why I read in Romans this morning when we started, because Paul talks about this. You see, the message version says this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger bringing good news. Breaking the news that all's well. I love that line. Breaking the news that all's well. Meaning it was really bad before, but I'm here to tell you that all's well now. Everything's under control. Think of your scared child when you hear a big thump in the night. And you go and you check to see what the problem is and you go into their room and you look at them, all's well. I've got this under control. Proclaiming good times, announcing salvation, and telling Zion, your God reigns. You see, this is the joy that comes to Zion. This is what Isaiah is proclaiming. Paul pulls this entire promise forward as he explains to the church in Rome that this good news is what he is actually proclaiming everywhere he goes. In that is where faith is found and exercised. That's where 1017 in Romans comes in. Faith comes from what? Hearing. Hearing from what? The word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. It's just another deep and profound reminder in one little verse that to know his word is to know him. If you are not hearing from God, open your Bible and read it out loud. (laughs) To know his word is to know him. That's what Paul is saying. The joy that comes, his grace that is poured out on his children is absolutely free. Stop making people pay for it. Stop thinking you have to pay for it. How much performance do you have in a given day that you think is going to make God satisfied with you? Zippo. Nothing. He's already satisfied with you. Be obedient to what it is he's asking you to do that day as best as you can. That's the joy that comes, what is poured out. His children are free, given to undeserving people at the expense of another. That's Israel. That's you. That's me. That's the widow. That's the orphan. That's the gay. That's the straight. It's the lesbian. It's the trans. It's the Chinese. It's the black. It's the white. It's the yellow. It's the green. Let's make it easy. It's every human being that ever walked the face of the planet. That grace has been poured out. That's what's being painted here. All the world has God's grace. The problem is that the enemy knows that and that's why there's such a conflict. Because they're fighting. They do not want people to come to Christ in grace through faith alone. Thus we have such turmoil. Because the question ultimately is will people receive this grace? And then I challenge all of us, myself included, are we holding out this hope and this grace in such a way that makes People who don't have it want it? Do they see Jesus in us? In the way in which we handle them? I know that was a convicting thing for me, but I leave that with you to wrestle through. See, the voice of your watchman, this is what we've become. We are the watchmen and watchwomen proclaiming the one who brings good news. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. God is a vengeful and wrathful God, and at the end of time, he will take care of things. But make no mistake, this book is a book of a passionate, loving God who wants desperately for his people to come home. It speaks far more of that Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? You see, what Isaiah is telling us here, in effect, is that God's wrath is over, and his holiness is ours. If we are in Christ. His wrath is over. His holiness is ours if we are in Christ. Sum up verses 1 and 2. Put on your beautiful garments. Shake yourself from the dust. Loose the bonds from your neck. These are all freedom statements. These are not condemnation statements. These are not you dirty, stinking, rotten sinner, 900 pounds of junk on a popsicle stick. No. These are freedom statements. Put on your beautiful garments. Why? Because they were purchased for you. They were washed clean. Shake yourselves from the dust as David asked and put me on solid footing and loose the bonds from your neck. We are no longer slaves. We are free. How does this all happen? How does it all happen? The suffering servant. That's who. The one we know to be Jesus of Nazareth, who took on himself God's wrath so we don't have to. He is the beginning, middle, and end of this story. Our challenge, my challenge to you, is to see this, to learn to live it so very fully, and to share it as freely as Jesus did with you and me in all of its beauty. Part of understanding this new exodus for all of us is really getting a hold of what this looks like. It's to see in part what Mateer says about this and how this unfolds. And what Paul says about this and how he explains what this really looks like to the Ephesian church. And with these two quotes, I close as the worship team comes up. Mateer says this, "'Believe that his wrath is a thing of the past.'" Dress yourself in your new robe of righteousness. Start walking that separated pathway. See, just a real quick comment on that. That's costly grace. That's not cheap grace. That means that his wrath has been removed from you if you're in Christ, but that doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want. His grace, the costly grace, means that we live a particular way. We operate a particular way. Yahweh has himself taken away his wrath. That's 51.22. It's very clear. Himself accomplished the total work of salvation. Not a thing you or I could do to earn it. Thief on the cross. Looked at Jesus and what did he do to get into heaven? He simply looked at Jesus and said what? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I can imagine when he got to the pearly gates, and I'm stealing this from another pastor, so this isn't mine. When he got to the pearly gates and the guy standing at the gates looked at that thief on the, who was on the cross, he says, what makes you think you deserve to be here? And I'm sure the thief looked at him and said, I don't know if I've done anything that I deserve to be here, but the man on the middle cross told me I could come. That's grace. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God knows our predicament. He knows our situation. He has fixed it. So the challenge for all of us this week and all of our prayer time and everything else, I want you to think of one name. One name of a person in your life that doesn't know Jesus. Just one name. Write it down. And begin to lift them up before the throne and say, Lord, begin to work on their heart allow the Holy Spirit to make their heart tender, that they can come to you and help me to be part of your plan in bringing them to you. Those who can pray, if you could please take your spots, I would appreciate it. Just a moment of silence and then we'll sing this last song. If you're in need of prayer, I would would ask that you just avail yourself of the opportunity to be prayed for before you leave here. That privilege too is a costly one.